Support for Petri Dish is made possible by UT Health San Antonio, committed to transforming the health of the community through the team that tackles problems from every angle, doing everything it takes to bring each patient the best possible outcomes. From teaching tomorrow's healthcare leaders to translating research into new treatments, UT Health San Antonio strives to make lives better. Learn more at groundbreakingresearch.org. So, hi, everybody. Um, Maria Van Kerkhove has been talking to the world about COVID-19 since before it had a name back in 2020. So, today, I um, wanted to just give a, a brief overview of sort of where we are in terms of COVID, but also in the context of other circulating respiratory uh, pathogens, and most notably influenza. So I want she is the World Health Organization's technical lead on COVID-19 and is as familiar with the vagaries of this virus as anyone anywhere. A couple weeks ago, on January 12th, she appeared to want to alert a world that has mostly totally moved on from the pandemic that they continue to ignore the virus at their peril. So I think what's really critical right now is that the world understands that COVID, uh, the, the public health risk from COVID remains high, and this is globally. Um, we have a pathogen um, that is circulating in all countries. It's clear that case numbers are up everywhere. People are keeping track. But case numbers aren't providing a clear picture of the state of the pandemic anymore. Case-based data that is reported to WHO is not a reliable indicator. It has not been a reliable indicator for a couple of years now. And so if you look at the epi curve, it looks like the virus is gone, and it's not. Not by a long shot. According to wastewater estimates that we have from a number of countries, the actual circulation of SARS-CoV-2 is anywhere between 2 and 19 times higher than what is being reported. Two to 19 times higher than reported. So if that's true in, for example, San Antonio, where more than 2,300 people tested positive for COVID in the week leading up to January 30th, worst case scenario, that 2,300 is actually nearly 44,000 people infected with COVID-19. Van Kerkhove stresses, this is still a pandemic. And here's why we're still in a pandemic. One is the virus continues to evolve. Uh, we do not yet have a predictable pattern or seasonal pattern with COVID. Despite reduced reporting from countries, the virus is still infecting, it's reinfecting, it's killing, it's causing suffering from acute disease represented by people in hospital. And right now, we estimate that there are hundreds of thousands in hospital for COVID. And our concern is in five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what are we going to see in terms of cardiac impairment, of pulmonary impairment, of neurologic impairment? We don't know. We don't know everything about this virus. It's year five of the pandemic, and I know it feels a lot longer, but there's still a lot that we don't know about it. What we do know is it's still best to try not to get infected in the first place. But what we know about testing, treatments, and vaccines, it's all evolving with the virus. So as we head into year five with this virus, let's talk about it. COVID-19 
in 2024. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. <laughs> I've uh, got a very bad cough, a very bad cough, headaches, shortness of breath. Um, I haven't been able to sleep. I'm just miserable, just, just not feeling good at all. Uh, Olivia Strange has been pretty sick for more than a week. It just hasn't gotten better. I've been taking over-the-counter medications and stuff, but it doesn't seem to be working. So they told me, come in and get tested. So get the right medications. So we'll see what happens. Olivia lives in San Antonio with her son and four-year-old granddaughter, Alora. As often happens in multi-generational homes, Alora came home with a little cough right around the time Olivia started feeling bad. I don't know if it's the flu or COVID or RSV, so that's what I'm here to be tested for. All three. What was no big deal for Alora could be a very big deal for Olivia. She wants her Skittles. Say hi, Mama. Hello. So, Miss Strange, uh, I'm Dr. Lomboy. Mm -hmm. I'm one of the physicians here at Express Med Pavilion uh, UMA. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, From what I understand, you're having some symptoms. Yes. Uh, Tell me about your symptoms. Uh, A cough, so Uh shortness of breath. Yes. Um, I get exhausted very easily. The shortness of any cough? The cough. Congestion? Congestion, cough. Headache? Headaches, Fever? Olivia has kidney disease and has dialysis three times a week. She also has congestive heart failure. And any one of the big three viruses circulating this time of year could be deadly to her. And then when you cough, do you get also short of breath? You get wind of the I get very winded and shortness of breath. Okay. I, I've been, a, I have a uh, pulse ox at home. Uh-huh. And I notice that when and I'm trying to sleep, I can't breathe. Like, okay. I can't find oxygen. It's and like so I've been using the pulse ox, and it's, it's going low. It's going low to, the lowest it's gone is like to 75. Really? Yeah. But it's usually high. It's usually like 99, 100. Uh-huh. Okay. But it's been going low, and so and, uh, and uh, that's concerning to me. Yeah. So Olivia I, gets I, I swabbed to determine whether she's got COVID, flu, RSV, or something else, and an X-ray to see if any of those has settled in her lungs as pneumonia. Yeah. Well, thank you for allowing us to no evaluate you and have I just want to get better. Right now, we're locked in a wave of respiratory virus activity is peaking right now, just as COVID is changing again. And that means we may need to change our behavior again. As it seems like I do at least once a year on this subject, I reached out to Caitlin Jettelina, your local epidemiologist, to talk about the state of the pandemic in 2024. 
Jetalina's a public health expert with a PhD in epidemiology and biostatistics and has been the expert behind the COVID-focused newsletter, Your Local Epidemiologist, since March of 2020. I asked her if the current COVID wave is being driven by more than gatherings over winter break. Yeah, so there's really three things at play. One is these holidays. Uh, They open up our social networks. We see people that we don't typically see. And so the virus finds new pathways to spread. The other reason is weather, right? It's getting a whole lot colder and that increased transmission And then the third reason is this, is the virus continues to mutate and the newest mutation called JN.1 is one of the most fit mutations we've seen since the original Omicron. And so really it's the combination of those three that we're seeing right now. Ah, JN1, the new version of Omicron that does not much resemble its Omicron cousin, XBB, which has been the dominant strain for years. Yeah, so, I mean, SARS-CoV-2 continues to mutate, and currently COVID-19 is mutating about twice as fast as the flu. So this means that every couple months, we're going to see a new subvariant. Um, and JN1 is one that has a high growth advantage. So that means that even though we have a lot of immunity in our population, in our communities, it's still finding a way to transmit from person to person fairly rapidly. And the the fastest it's transmitted from person to person since that original Omicron tsunami. In fact, Centers for Disease Control has estimated that JN1 accounts for more than 86 percent of COVID cases in the United States. And though it doesn't appear that JN1 causes more severe disease, those boosters not enough of us have been getting were made to target XBB. Are they still reducing the risk of infection or severe disease? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, Now, I will say that JN.1 isn't like a SARS-CoV-3, right? It's still it's still COVID-19. Yeah, it has a lot of mutations, but what we've seen in the lab is really positive news that, yeah, our vaccines still work against JN.1. Maybe not as well as if XBB was circulating, but still a great amount. This virus is going to continue to mutate, and the best we can do is try to keep up with it, which I think we've done fairly well this, uh, this respiratory season. But the emergence of JN1 in an XBB vaccine world is a reminder that COVID vaccines may have to be frequently reformulated, like the flu vaccine, to keep up. Problem is, there is no COVID season like there is a flu season. Yeah, so COVID-19 isn't having these seasonality um, patterns that we typically see with coronaviruses and flu and RSV, for example. And that's incredibly frustrating because that means that we have to kind of ride these waves as they come. And it looks like they're coming about three times, four times a year which is contributing significantly to disease burden. You know, COVID-19 still top five leading cause of death in the United States. And so, so yeah, I think the biggest challenge 
when we think about not having seasonality is exactly what we are talking about is formulations for the vaccines and more particularly who needs vaccines when i would not be surprised to hear the fda decide again this upcoming year that those over 65 need two vaccines um, in 2024 one in spring and one in one in fall just to again keep our immune defenses as high as they can be because there is no seasonality and the predictability of this is quite frustrating um, because there doesn't seem to be that many solid patterns yet. That is the key reason the World Health Organization cannot declare this pandemic over. To say something is endemic is to indicate that there is something predictable about it, and we're just not there yet with COVID. And with each new COVID subvariant comes new confusion, not only about whether the vaccines will still work, but what about other things? What about tests? Jetalina has some concerns there. You know, I am seriously questioning the utility of these tools given the cost-benefit ratio to the average American. I'll explain when Petri Dish continues. Support for Petri Dish is made possible by UT Health San Antonio, committed to transforming the health of the community through the team that tackles problems from every angle, doing everything it takes to bring each patient the best possible outcomes. From teaching tomorrow's healthcare leaders to translating research into new treatments, UT Health San Antonio strives to make lives better. Learn more at groundbreakingresearch.org. Welcome back to Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petri. Yeah, I've got a comment from you. Mm-hmm. I ordered some cough medicine for you. Okay. Uh, I ordered also a chest X-ray. Dr. Juanito Lomboy is one of the attending physicians for the Urgent Care Express Med Pavilion. It's a walk-in clinic and part of the University Health System in San Antonio, Texas. And and uh, a quick uh, caution also, I, that shortness of breath is getting worse, you think? It's getting worse, yes. Yeah, then, then it might be a good thing to go to the emergency room. Lomboy is trying to figure out if San Antonio grandma Olivia Strange has COVID, flu, RSV, or in San Antonio this time of year, it could be the dreaded cedar fever allergies, which are awful. Lomboy does know her shortness of breath and self-reported low oxygen saturation in her blood is concerning. Yeah, we always play detective as you all have that kind of like questioning mind when you see a patient uh, because... Uh, you know, the, their management uh, it depends on your primary diagnosis. People with flu might get a prescription for the antiviral medication Tamiflu. People with COVID might be prescribed Paxlovid. So those are kind of uh, the symptomatology help us clear up the confusion between what's going on. Because the worst thing you could do is misdiagnosing and giving an appropriate treatment. And there is a clock ticking for antivirals. A person should start taking Tamiflu within 48 hours of symptom onset. Someone with COVID should start taking Paxlovid within five days of experiencing symptoms. 
the problem is, if you don't know you have COVID, you're probably not going to take COVID medication. And your local epidemiologist, Caitlin Gentilina, is starting to question the usefulness of rapid antigen tests that we've all had stockpiled in our houses for the last few years. That's right. So we have uh, these antigen tests. There's actually one FDA-approved antigen test for flu and COVID. I hope one day it'll add RSV and other viruses on there. But really, the only reason to know what virus is infecting you is, yeah, is treatments. So, for example, getting Paxlovid or Tamiflu. And then also is isolation. We are infectious for far longer with COVID-19 than, for example, the flu. So that means that that means you should be staying home longer if you have COVID or flu. And you really wouldn't know that unless you got tested. I think that there's a lot of challenges with these antigen tests, though, as we go on in time and as this virus mutates and as our immunity builds, is that the utility of these antigen tests start coming into question because with COVID, for example, nowadays, our antigen tests don't become positive until day three or day four or even day five with people. And so what use is that if you're going out in the public for those first five days because you think you're negative because you did the right thing and tested? I think it also brings into question Paxlovid because you need Paxlovid within the first five days of infection and an added complication to all of this is that these tests are expensive they're like $25 a test if you have a family of four and you need to test three times before you see grandma that's absolutely ridiculous amount of cost that we're asking people especially if they're not very effective at telling us what we want them to tell us And, whoa, they are expensive. When my daughter was going to go back to college after a known COVID exposure at Thanksgiving, I went to buy tests. I had finally run out of my free test stash, and I was shocked by the price. I was going to buy four so we could both test twice. I bought one. It was cost prohibitive to buy more. Now, toward the end of November, the federal government restarted covidtest.gov, and you may be able to order free tests for your stash if you go to the website. But the days of easily accessible, free, or even affordable COVID tests are over, and Jetalina doesn't feel great about it. I am seriously questioning the utility of these tools, given the cost-benefit ratio to the average American. And I can't say with good faith that a family of four should go spend $100, $200, $300 for serial testing to maybe catch whether you have COVID-19 or not. And we need to push again for that innovation and the need to keep up with this. I think that one silver lining of the pandemic was we we're shown that we don't have to accept our fate with viruses, that there are things we can do. We just need the tools at our fingertips to do them. The same is true for a whole toolbox full of COVID tools, not just at-home tests. And that's not the only one, right, that's starting to see the the reaction to privatization. Um, we're seeing it with Paxlovid, $1,400 for Paxlovid and then also vaccines, right? I mean, vaccines are privatized right now. And so one of the biggest, I don't know what the word is, maybe a tease that we saw was this 
government funded kind of healthcare system during the emergency that ended up working really freaking good and decreased disparities. And after the emergency, this has all really dissipated, which has been really hard to watch. So what do you do if you have symptoms, don't know what you have, and don't trust your rapid antigen tests? I mean, stay home. <laughs> I I think uh, this comes down to that if you feel if you have symptoms, that means you regardless of what virus you have, whether it's RSV or flu or another coronavirus or COVID-19, if you have symptoms, there's a very, very high likely chance that you are contagious. Um, and once those symptoms go away, that may be a good sign that you have moved out of contagiousness stage. Um, but so it really comes down to how do we how do we manage the <laughs> manage these symptoms and it's staying home. Um, unfortunately, again, we come to the realization that a lot of people can't stay home, that they don't have paid sick time, that they don't um, have flexible work schedules. And um, until we change and fix those underlying reasons why people aren't staying at home sick, we're just going to continue to see this cycle of respiratory illness. You know what? I know this sucks. I know I probably shouldn't use the word sucks here in this podcast. It's not the most professional term, but man, this just really sucks so bad, doesn't it? We're heading into our fifth year of this, and I'm doing another show where Dr. Jetalina is telling us again, or still, depending on, you know, the way you've been living your life, to consider wearing masks. I mean, I am wearing a mask still. Um, very, I mean, I'm headed to the airport later this afternoon. There's absolutely, I'm wearing a mask, and that will absolutely help. Is it a foolproof measure? No, but it is one layer. I got vaccinated, which is another layer. Look, I know most of you aren't going to wear a mask all the time. So how do you determine where and when? Should you wear one, say, to the grocery store? Transmission is dependent on proximity and duration, which means that you are far more likely to get infected by someone in your household because you're very proximal and you're with them for a long time compared to someone you breeze through at a grocery store. So in that case, I mean, I wouldn't wear, I don't wear a mask at the grocery store, but if my husband was infected with COVID at home, I would be wearing a mask at home. <laughs> Um, and so I think thinking through that duration and proximity helps a lot. Another example is flying. Um, if you're in the boarding area for the 20 minutes while you're waiting for instructions to get on the plane, that's a lot, a lot of time very closely knit together with a lot of people. It's a great time to be wearing a mask compared to, for example, if you're checking in luggage outside um, is a less likely chance. And so I think that you can play these gymnastics of when to wear a mask or not. But to me, the the easiest is wear a mask in crowded indoor areas during these surges. Um, and to me, that's usually around November 1st to probably around March 1st, depending on our metrics. And that won't that will help with COVID, but it'll also help with flu. And we think it'll help with RSV, although we haven't seen the data yet. Proximity, duration, 
And what is the air quality like where you're going? Is there good filtration? Can you open the windows? Air quality is something that we don't talk about nearly enough. You're right. I mean, one also silver lining of the pandemic is we learned a ton about aerosols, about the impact of ventilation and filtration. The challenge is, one, it's an invisible tool. So it's really hard to kind of keep on top of mind, unlike a mask is, for example. And two, it requires institutional level uh, interventions. It, It requires employers to do something. It requires stores to do something. It requires schools to do something. So it's really hard at the individual level to ensure, for example, air quality is good. This is really dependent on institutions. And I think that we as individuals, what we can do is advocate for it, ask questions about it, and make sure our schools are updating their systems. Um, Because you're right, it would help immensely. And not just with viruses, with old building syndrome. I mean, there's so much that air quality could help with. So the bottom line for this wave is not a heck of a lot different than it has been for years now. Yeah, you know, vaccinations help a little with infection and transmission, particularly the first couple months after vaccination. Again, wearing a mask, you know, especially a tight-fitted, good-filtered mask. It's um, like an N95 or a KN94. It will help. Lab studies have shown that on an individual level, those masks filter out SARS-CoV-2 particles. This is a physics question. Make sure that start of symptoms, you call your your physician and ask if you can get Paxlovid. Um, and that, that, I think that's about it. Um, get a lot of sleep, eat good food, and ride out these waves until springtime. We started this episode with Maria Van Kerkhove at the WHO bringing us up to date on the state of COVID in 2024. But she also noted something that I really can't stop thinking about. So I want to circle back to her. So by the end of 2023, um, 31st of December, more than 7 million people have been reported to WHO as having died from COVID-19. So we expect that the actual true number is at least three times higher. So those 7 million deaths are COVID only, which is truly astonishing. At least 7 million people, maybe up to 21 million people. Some of them I knew. Some of them you knew. Some of them we loved. All killed by COVID. Before we leave this episode, I could deliver some good news, though. Olivia Strange, who let us sit with her during her exam at the Express Med Clinic in San Antonio, does not have pneumonia and she does not have COVID. She tested positive for influenza A, and though she had been sick too long for Tamiflu to be useful to her, she was prescribed medications to help ease her symptoms. I hope she's feeling much better already. episode of Petri Dish was produced by TPR News Director Dan Katz, Jacob Rosati, and me. I wrote the show, and Jacob Rosati composed all the music and created the sound design. Petri Dish 
is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.